Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and the rottest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Hello. Very interesting week this week. 2022, baby. Yeah, a lot of 2022 lesser known films on the docket. Let's get into it. We watched six, six, six macaroonies this week. And we went to Metro Cinema for the first one, and we saw the 2022 drama Brother. It was directed by Clement Virgo. The screenplay was also written by him, and it's based on the novel by David Cheriandi. Cheriandi? Cheriandi. Cheriandi. Uh, a novel often taught in high school? It is. I, w- I don't know if I would say often, but Brother, I think, is becoming a... Along with the hate you give, a replacement for To Kill a Mockingbird. And Brother is the one that um, my school has kind of shifted towards in taking To Kill a Mockingbird out of the curriculum. I didn't realize The Hate You Give was also another one. It's taught a lot. Um, that that hasn't been taught at my school, but it is being taught in a lot of like the bigger urban centers. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, it stars Lamar Johnson as Michael, Aaron, Aaron Pierre as Francis, Marsha Stephanie Blake as Ruth, Kiana Madeira as Aisha, and Lovell Adams Gray as Jelly. Uh, the synopsis. Sons of Caribbean immigrants, Francis and Michael face questions of masculinity, identity, and family amidst the pulsing beat of Toronto's early hip-hop scene. Canada. We're in Canada on this one. So, what do you think of Brother? <laughs> do you want to do that again? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, I really liked this. I... I think it's one of those ones that the experience of watching it for me was really strong. I can't see myself revisiting it a lot. I'm not going to say never. Right. But I can't, I can't see it being like one that I is on like an, I could watch it all the time list, Mm -hmm. but I thought it was incredibly well made and well acted. And I think it's an important story. Yeah. I'm kind of in a similar place. Like, even like this was the first movie we watched this week. 
I didn't find myself revisiting it in my head very much. Um, like some films that we watch just kind of stick with me throughout the week and I reflect on them and get more and more thoughts on them. And this, yeah, this wasn't one of them. This was one we, yeah, like you said, we sat down, I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was extremely well-crafted and well-acted, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't see myself revisiting this necessarily ever again. And that's not necessarily saying this is a bad film, but not one that stuck with me in a lasting way. Um, I will say though, what has stuck with me, the number one thing probably is the work of Lamar Johnson, who played who played Michael in this movie. Yeah, the, he is really I, I think all of the actors do a really fantastic job, but the film is really anchored around his performance. Yeah. And the whole movie, I'm just like, where do I know this guy from? Because this guy has the potential of just making me cry. Like just his delivery and the way he holds himself in this film. I'm just like, I recognize you and I feel like you've made me cry before. He was in a very impactful episode of The Last of Us. We've, we realized after the fact. Um, I think he's pretty special. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so what we're learning is that Elliot is in love with Lamar Johnson. <laughs> he's pretty special. I just, I feel like as he keeps going and is in more and more things, I will be excited to see the things that he's in. Because... Uh, He's uh, he's putting something special out there. You're really burying the lead here in that he was Henry in The Last of Us. Yes. Big, big role. Big role in the story overall. Yeah. And uh, yeah, ripped my guts out in that show and ripped him out a little bit in this. Not as much, <laughs> but a little bit. Well, I think it's, it's interesting. So this is, this is a slow film and we watched quite a few slow films this week yes maybe more than we normally would in a in a short span of time but these are all films we really wanted to see and they were in the theater and we don't know when they'll be available to stream or rent so we took that opportunity um had you read the book before i have read the book before yeah i I read the book a couple summers ago um, with the intention of deciding if I wanted to replace To Kill a Mockingbird with it, because I do think it's time to to move away from that in our um, literary studies. And then I just haven't taught the grade level course that that would be in since then. So I don't really remember it super well. I remember reading it and being like, oh, you know, this is really a story of black grief. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish we would replace Mockingbird with something that doesn't continue to contain a central focus on like dead black men. Yeah. Um, now the difference here though, like when I, when I have taught to kill a mockingbird in the past, I've talked to my students about how to kill a mockingbird is a book about in, in some respect, not the whole book, but parts of the book are about race, but it's written by a white woman for white people. Now brother isn't that like brother is about black grief. And I mean, there is like, it's about black community as well. And it's about this very specific part of Toronto mm-hmm. at a very specific time. Um, and I've, I've heard when I, you know, when I was reading brother and kind of looking into potentially teaching it, that it's a very accurate in many ways, portrayal of that area of Toronto, of Regent park. Um, but this is, a book written by a black man for black people. Yes. Right. And so there's a difference in that. And then I wonder like, what's my place in teaching that then? Mm. Um, 
Now, viewing it seems to be like reading it, viewing it. That's different than teaching it. Um, and, and I've heard a lot of people talking about like, in some ways negatively about this film because it is so much about grief and it is about like the, the primarily like the death of a black man mm-hmm. and like needing more black joy on film, which I agree. But I also think as a white person, I don't know that it's my space to be like, well, we just need black joy. Um, because I think we all need portrayals of grief and loss and the, and, and anxiety and trauma and horror. And we need them in ways that we recognize ourselves in. And I think that this is a very different portrayal of black grief than, than other things. Yeah. Right. In that I think this film is ultimately about how do you heal from that grief and what happens when you refuse to heal from that grief. And I think that that's a really important thing to explore and to tackle and that like anybody should be able to get something out of that exploration of like grief and healing or lack of healing. But then there's also the specific focus on the black community yeah, and specifically community. Yeah. Like not singular person. And I think who are folks who are not a part of that community to say, well, we should have gotten more joy in that. Yeah. Like in, in kind of reflecting on this movie a little bit, uh, you and I, when we were chatting about it, we kind of drew a comparison to another film we covered on the show that focuses around black grief, which is Fruitvale Station. Yes. And kind of, if you, if you look at those two stories, brother and Fruitvale Station, um, I think that this one, it does such a, it does such a good job of kind of giving us more of the family relationships and the dynamics and yeah, the kind of the, how to move forward after the grief and, and to acknowledge that it's not always that easy. Yeah, that it's not just, you know, put a pin in that and we're just going to move on. It's very much dealing with the complexities of grief and how it affects you and your everyday life and the people around you. And how do you personally cope with that kind of thing? Yeah, and I thought it was I thought because of the beautiful acting, it came it totally came across and and, and nailed that that tone and that feeling for me. And I think that, you know, we this is something that, you know, when we watched, I think we've mentioned on the show before the um, documentary. Is it called Disclosure? Is that what it's called? The one about um, trans representation. Can't remember what it's called, but it talked about how and I can't remember who it might have been Jen Richards who said um, it's not that we can't have portrayals of trans folks that are trauma-based, but it's when that's the only thing or when the portrayals are are always harmful or when it's just like a bad portrayal and it's not balanced with all of these other complex portrayals that becomes an issue. Now, I think, like for me as as a white viewer, I'm like, if I'm going to watch something like Brother, I want to seek out maybe my next film to be something about Black Joy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not always watching Black trauma. But I do think that like this film is an important exploration of like, masculinity and vulnerability and like queerness is a part of it at like like uh black queer men mm-hmm. and um the immigrant experience is a part of it and to just dismiss it as like oh we have too many portrayals of, of black trauma right i think does a disservice to some of the really beautiful things that this film is doing this film is more in the vein of like a moonlight yeah i i agree in terms of like the way it feels to watch it yeah 
Because I, I, I think that one of my favorite parts of the movie is actually the opening scene. Beautiful opening scene. It's so well done and it's so magnetic. And I kept going back to it in my head while we were watching the whole movie. Which and is what it wants. Exactly. And that's, I think, a testament to how strong the opening scene is because you keep referring back to it as a viewer throughout the film and start really digging into the in, the intentions and uh, and what is behind the actions of our main characters, of Michael and Francis. This film does, um, a lot of the film is cutting between three different time periods. No, yeah, three different time periods. Mm-hmm. So kind of Michael as a child, Michael high school age, then Michael in the present when he's like a an, an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm a younger adult than an adult, and I am a total sucker for that. Mm-hmm. I love a, especially when you've got like a match cut mm-hmm. that takes us from like the past to the present because I'm very compelled by explorations of memory mm-hmm. and time and and, you know, beating a dead horse here, but after sun, love it. I love when we, when films explore kind of how we reevaluate memory and we reevaluate past experiences with new information or in a new moment in our lives. And I think this film did that really beautifully. Another line you can tie to Moonlight as well. Absolutely. Like, I mean, look at the cover of Moonlight and it's, it's telling you that right there on the, um, in the artwork. Hmm. But I did think, you know, this movie is slow. <laughs> yes. And it, in some ways there are beats of it that we have seen before, but I don't know that I've seen them in this way. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a complex, vulnerable, beautiful way of exploring it. But the acting is phenomenal. The lighting mm-hmm. is like the part of, yes, the performances are magnetic, but what is visually on the screen is magnetic mm-hmm. and draws you in. And then I'm fairly certain that there was a sound design choice that you were a little confused by because you're like, was there just something going wrong with like the speakers in the theater? And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that that was intentional, that there's this consistent, um, like a hum, a hum that's, that's connected to the first scene of the film that kind of raises in intensity and and lowers in intensity throughout the film that I actually thought was, was quite clever. Yeah. In terms of kind of a subconscious instead of using score, not that it doesn't use score, but, it's pretty light on score. I, I think mm-hmm. um, instead of using score to kind of create a particular feeling, it's using this, this humming noise. Um, so it's this interesting thing where I think the film is incredibly well-made in every regard. Mm-hmm. And yet there was just something about it that at least on this viewing didn't like totally emotionally win me over. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't pick me up by the shirt collar as much as a, story like moonlight or after sun or something like that picks me up emotionally. Um, not to say I didn't enjoy the experience of watching brother, but and Canadian film. Gotta love it. Yeah. It's, it's weird. At one point we shoot, there's a shot of the TV with, I think his name was master T from much music. (laughs) Who was a VJ in like the (laughs) nineties. Yeah, just it's always it's always fun and interesting. And it won't be the first film this week. I've just seen Canada. Yeah, we're we're living for a little bit more. Not Canada pretending to be New York or L.A. or whatever. Not not just like, oh, we wanted a tax credit. So we filmed in Canada. But like Canada is Canada on film. And this is one of one of two this week that does that. And living for that. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so, you know, didn't head over heels, love this film, but still think it's a really well-executed piece of media that is worth seeking out if you're even the light, the slightest bit interested. You should check it out. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a sense of, like, reflective melancholy. Mm, yeah. It's kind of the, like, vibe through the whole film. It's just melancholy and, like, looking backward. Mm-hmm. You? Uh, yeah, I was compelled by the complexity of family, relationships, and masculinity that were on display uh, in this film. So we went uh, back to Metro Cinema. This was a real Metro Cinema week after a little bit of not going as often. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline, a 2022 crime drama thriller. It was directed by Daniel Goldhaber and written by Daniel Goldhaber, Jordan Scholl, and Ariel, Ariella Bearer. And it is based on the nonfiction book titled How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. It stars a lot of people, and I think they all have kind of equal footing, so I'm going to name them all. So Ariella Bearer, who co-wrote the script, plays Zochi. Christine Froseth plays Rowan. Lucas Gage plays Logan. Forrest Goodluck plays Michael. Sasha Lane plays Theo. Jamie Lawson plays Alicia. Marcus Scribner plays Sean. And Jake Weary plays Dwayne. The synopsis is a crew of environmental activists plot a daring plan to disrupt an oil pipeline. This one is so interesting to me um, because for the longest time I thought it was a documentary. Oh, really? Yeah. And when we when we were in Calgary earlier in the year and we were meeting up with a friend to to see a movie, one of the suggestions was how to blow up a pipeline. I was like, oh, I'm not really in the mood for a documentary. Mm. And we ended up seeing Willem Dafoe in Inside. And then later on, I found out that this was like a crime thriller. And I was like, oh, but now I'm understanding that I probably thought that because the book is like not even a memoir. It's just like a nonfiction book on climate activism. Mm. Anyway, what did you think of How to Blow Up a Pipeline? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll say right out of the gate, it is. it was tough watching this while Alberta, what at the time of watching it, is, I, I guess it still is, on fire. Well, yeah, because so... If you listened to last week's episode, and I and I highly recommend you do, even if you just skip to when we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, if you haven't listened to it, this has a great title. Leatherface gives me the goosies. Come on, <laughs> gotta give us. We're some. out here killing it with the episode <laughs> titles. <laughs> if you don't love our episode titles, then I am sad. <laughs> yeah, if you came for the episode titles, stay for the show. <laughs> stay for the show. But we, so when we saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre about a week before we saw How to Blow Up a Pipeline in the same theater, theater smelled like wildfire smoke, still did by this point. So we've been having like a solid week of just apocalyptic looking skies. Um, don't be outside for more than five minutes if you can. And if you have to wear a mask, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. So perhaps never a more appropriate time to watch this film than when like you can't. I don't know how anyone could cognitively dissonance away the fact that climate. Grief is here. <laughs> yes. Climate destruction is here. Um, now because Metro cinema is super cool and does a lot of stuff beyond just programming, uh, this particular showing of how to blow up a pipeline had a pre-show talk by climate justice Edmonton, 
And then they were also tabling in the lobby both before and after the show, which I thought was a really great addition to watching the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if that particularly influenced how busy the theater was because it was a little bit busier Mm -hmm. um, and who the particular audience was. But you could just, I, I have not seen so many people, including ourselves, wearing masks out in public in a long time as I have when we went to this movie, which was kind of lovely. <laughs> yes. You put on a movie about being socially and environmentally conscious. It's going to attract the people who, who are, are socially, socially and, and environmentally, environmentally conscious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a great intro. It's always just like, it's always that thing of you feel like you're being grabbed by the shoulders and just being told again, that yeah, you need to be aware of this kind of stuff in a good way. Mm-hmm. Like it, I think it for me at least, having those reminders about this stuff. You know, aside from looking outside and just seeing the apocalypse in the sky because of all the smoke. Like it is a good reminder to just reflect on your actions as it as it you know uh, as it uh, pertains to everything, but particularly with environmental stuff. Like I feel like it's easy to just feel like throwing up your hands and be like, what good am I going to do when I go to a fast food restaurant? And there's a bunch of single use shit that's always being replenished sitting on the counters. But it, it acts as a really good reflection point for me of just the little things I can do day to day that can make me feel better. Give me that, those little dopamine drops that I'm helping the planet in some way yeah it's 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 hard to find those hopeful moments though and i don't think this is a hopeful movie no and i think that it's um there are times where i think it's relevant to not be hopeful yeah because if this film is a hopeful movie like just do abc and you'll have fixed climate change. <laughs> yeah. Then that's actually delusional. Right? Yeah. So this film is, I think, it's such an interesting thing to take a nonfiction book and then use it as a inspiration for a fictional film. Also interesting, Daniel Gold- Goldhaber uh, co-wrote and directed Cam, mm. which I don't believe we talked about on the show. I think it was right before we started. Mm-hmm. But I quite liked Cam. Yeah, me too. Um, and they both have this like sense of increasing anxiety, stress, and overwhelm leading to like a mm-hmm. potential culmination of something quite intense. Yes. He's very good at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I felt you feel that intensity growing and it uses this device of cutaways really effectively throughout the film at like peak intense moments. This is like... Ocean's Eleven, if Ocean's Eleven wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it is thrilling. Like, I did find this, this film thrilling, and I found myself, like, concerned for, like, how it would go. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the other interesting thing about watching this. It's a, it's a really big cast, mm-hmm. and I've seen all of them in something else. Yes. And yet couldn't name it. Can I can I speak to you about who who they all are? Yes. Okay, so the actor who plays Zochi, young Cece in New Girl. Christ. Yes. The, I want to say this movie was an exercise 
a really big exercise in where do I know this person from? And most of them I couldn't figure out. At one point, I figured out, I was just like, I spent most of the movie just being like, to eventually get to the point where like, oh, fuck, that's Junior from Blackish. <laughs> well, okay, let me continue. Yes, yes. Sorry, go ahead. Um, the actor who plays Logan is in the first season of The White Lotus. Which one's Logan? So Sorry. he's he's the oh, boyfriend, yes. the white boyfriend. And he's also in American Vandal. One of my all-time favorite shows, I must say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this one is not as relevant to you, but the actor who plays Michael and the actor who plays Theo are both in The Miseducation of Cameron. Cameron Crowe, is that? That no. can't be right. Cam- <laughs> no. Cameron Crowe's the director. <laughs> yeah. Miseducation of Cameron something. Cameron Poe? Poe? No, I don't think it's Poe. That's Edgar Allan Poe you're thinking of. Lauren, Cam- Lauren Hill? Cameron Post. Post. Lauren Hill. That is an album. Yeah, well, we are just <laughs> fucking it all up. Um, but they were both in The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which you haven't seen. No. But I have. Uh, and I recognized both of them from that. But then the actor who plays Theo is also in Loki. Um, oh. Is one of the, like, agents. Mm. The actress who plays Alicia, or actor who plays Alicia, is Bella Real from The Batman. Okay. And then, as you said, uh, Sean is junior from blackish. And as we were watching, I'm like, I swear I've seen this person in like a sitcom, mm-hmm. like something where they're goofy, where he's yeah. goofy. Um, and then you did, you did get this one right away, but there's like a Southern stereotypical, but then not because he's blowing up a pipeline guy uh, and he's the boyfriend and it follows. Um, so like all of these people have played like a small role in something else where I was like, I know that I know that face. Yeah, I know all these people. Um, but I thought they all did a really great job. Like this film is really intense. Yeah. It doesn't feel good. No. Like the things <laughs> they're doing, I don't think they even feel particularly good about it. They just feel like something has to be done. Yeah. Well, there is this kind of, at least for me, I was feeling this sense of, while there is this kind of rah-rah, stick-it-to-the-maniosis that's going on, there's also this help, this hopelessness that exists. And I feel like it's very indicative of just how we, as humans, who choose not to be cognit- cognitively dissonant about, the, about climate change, is like the fact that uh, there... It's not all the time. Yeah. I think sometimes I am. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll just explode. Yes. <laughs> but... It's it's this thing of like, yeah, we're going to go destroy these pipelines, but we're also like driving there in gasoline vehicles mm-hmm. to do it. And it's just like, where does the cycle end? And what, like, what can you even do? And how much of a difference can you make when the whole world is so dependent on this thing that you're trying to stop? And I think that's like the point. That's why the film doesn't have the sense of like hollow rejoice and correction and yay we fixed everything in it and if it did i think that'd be a a real problem yeah instead what i got from this film is sometimes you have to fight back Mm -hmm. right it's that that like sometimes you can't just continue to accept something that you don't accept Mm -hmm. and you need to demonstrate that you don't now it was this was one of my like favorite things that I'll be talking about for the rest of my life. But Claimant Justice Edmonton made very clear that they are not (laughs) pro-sabotage because this film, the nonfiction book, I guess, um, one of the key, I haven't read it, um, but I've heard good things about it. 
one of the key things it says is that like sabotage needs to be a part of climate activism. Oh. And then climate justice Edmonton. And that's why it's in the film, right? The film is about. So what the screenwriters did is they took like the tenants of how to be a climate activist from that book and then applied it in a fictional setting. Mm. Um, but climate justice Edmonton said, we don't sabotage. We, we are nonviolent. Um, and if anybody tries to speak to you about <laughs> sabotage, be careful, be mindful of things you say to strangers. And then after the film, you went to go pee and you left me alone for someone to try and get me to sabotage. Yeah. And I was alone in the bathroom. I Somebody could have gotten you to sabotage. I could. <laughs> we were we were very vulnerable to inducement to sabotage. Yeah. And um, we nobody managed to got get us out. to sabotage. <laughs> nobody got us to sabotage. I'm not saying I'm against sabotage, but I'm saying that I I'm too much of a baby and I'm not gifted enough. Um physical strength wise or uh, ability to understand spatiality or mm. math or anything like that or science to, to be a part of sabotage. I just, I would, f I would fuck it all up. If I was part of your sabotage, your sabotage would be sabotaged. So yeah, I could, don't invite me to sabotage. Yeah. I don't know what I could do. I mean, I can maybe help you lift something and like bring snacks. I could sabotage communication. Uh, you could write like a real sabotage email. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I could so see if you that. need me for emails. <laughs> if you if you need somebody who's really good at emails for your sabotage, <laughs> at baddad.red. <laughs> it's no, we you know what? We can't be a part of sabotage. Climate Justice Edmonton said no, and they seemed nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah, strike that. We don't want to be a part of your sabotage. Scandal. <laughs> American vandal. <laughs> Anyway, this was, you know, so there's there's two modes of looking at this film. And I think we were looking at it through a particular lens because of the day we saw it. Like, I feel like if we had seen this a couple months ago when we were in Calgary, it would have been a different experience just because of the context and where we were at. But watching this in our kind of, not kind of, in our favorite theater, mm -hmm. one of our favorite places to be with this group of like-minded people who live in the same city as us at a particular moment in time where like you have to be a real dingbat to be ignoring what's going on in the environment as we all breathe in wildfire, wildfire smoke inside of the building mm -hmm. and climate justice Edmonton has spoken beforehand. It frames the movie in a particular way. So I think you could just watch this as like a fun action thriller. Yeah. Ocean's pipeline, ocean's pipeline, mm -hmm. ocean's 11 pipeline edition. Um, but watching it in that context, I think, was a useful exercise in sitting with climate grief and not like ignoring it or wallowing in it, but just like being with like minded people as you experience those feelings that you're sharing in both an individual and collective sense at the same time, which is our favorite thing about cinema. Yeah, because I think that I feel like a lot of rhetoric around climate change stuff is to ignore it and just deny that it's a part of your, uh, uh, that it's even happening. Um, or to like give you climate shame yeah. that you're not doing enough. But I feel like we need stories like this that are just a little bit more like this fucking sucks and we're pissed about it. So like, here's a compelling story about these people that were really passionate about it and just kind of leave it at that and not try to, I mean, if it effectively 
changes people's minds or makes them want to step up and do something, that's great. But I don't feel like that's the intention here. It's just, just like give a compelling story and climate change and pipelines are kind of the through line to get there. Like, I feel like it's, it's good to have stories that aren't just pushing an agenda full stop, that there is an entertainment value in it. That you can take and then there's the book level. if you want to like keep going, and that's why they had climate justice Edmonton tabling and yeah. I do want to mention um I haven't read this yet, but I've I've seen it kind of being recommended amongst people that I follow on on my personal Instagram, and I have it on my like list of things to read because I feel like it would be helpful. Um, and people say it's very good. So it's a nonfiction book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet, written by Sarah Jaquette Ray, uh, or Jaquette Ray. And yeah, I haven't read it, so I can't say that it's mm-hmm. awesome. But uh, a lot of people that I trust have said that it's really good. And that's my biggest, I think, thing is just climate anxiety and climate grief. Mm-hmm. On, on a side note, while we're talking about books that are environmental lifestyle adjacent highly recommend uh eating animals and we are the weather by jonathan saffron for two really good reads one of which changed our lives my (laughs) mine especially um yeah those were the books that first eating animals was like the the final step in us changing to a vegetarian diet Mm -hmm. um even though we'd both i think been kind of like considering it and considering like the ethics of our food consumption, particularly around meat for a long time. And then after reading, we are the weather, we were very vegan for a while. (laughs) Yes. And now I like to say that we are vegan adjacent. Yes. We, we eat vegan often, but we're not perfect about it. Yes. Um, that was a sidestep, but one thing I wanted to say about the movie for me, at least I, I found I wasn't overly invested in the characters. I mean, yeah, because it's it is kind of like an Ocean's Eleven style film. We're pretty dropped into the action. Mm -hmm. And as Climate Justice Edmonton said at the start of their um, at the start of the film, they talked about how I think in any kind of movement, whether it's like a realization that, oh, like racism is a real thing um, or capitalism friggin sucks or the world is dying, whatever it be. They Mm -hmm. talked about how there's like that moment of realization and then that can turn into radicalization Mm -hmm. and that the film demonstrates how that happens, but it does it through flashbacks. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of already like most of the film is just the action, like this group aiming to blow up a pipeline Mm -hmm. and like the, like looking at if they're going to be successful for that or not. And that's like the thriller aspect of it. But then intercut throughout it is flashbacks to the moments where they become radicalized enough to want to blow up the pipeline. Yeah. But even within that, it's not as much about the characters as it, as it is about radicalization. Yeah. And I think just because me being me, I'm such a sucker for really good characters um, when they're not fully fleshed out. Like I feel like this movie could have hit on a a deeper emotional level for me had those characters had a little bit more meat on the bones, so to speak. Yeah. Um no, and like it didn't it didn't make the movie suck or anything by any means, but I just like I wanted to dig deeper, especially on a character like Michael, who I found really compelling. Like I just I wanted a little bit a little bit more. It was a little bit uh 
That's so funny to me that you say that because you often pick dumb action movies with absolutely no character development that you love. I th- I hear you. <laughs> but those are white guy movies. Not that this wasn't directed by a white guy. <laughs> I think with this one, it's just what this movie is talking about can already be such an emotional, relatable thing for so many people that the characters could have added to the emo- emotionality of it all. But maybe that, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to speak with the people who made the film, but maybe they don't want to be telegraphing your emotions and manipulating you in that way. They Manipulate want the, me. They want the film to just shake something in you and have you reflect on your own experience without requiring you to identify or empathize with anyone involved in the film to care. Yeah, maybe. In which case, I think that's a very valid approach. Because if, you know, if the film then makes you feel like, well, you only cared because you cared about the character of Michael because the film telegraphed your feelings toward that character, then is the film not just manipulative? Well, maybe the way that they approached it is to what you're saying. It's just more accessible. Like I'm I'm the dad with a with a new kid on the way or I'm the college student yeah. or I'm yeah. the person that lives up north or it, it's just these really surface level points of being able to relate to the characters in the film for the I audience. I think you're being a little reductive. Uh, apologize if I'm being rude. And I don't reductive. think you're being rude. I just think you're oversimplifying it a little bit because like particularly with the character of Michael, we have like these scenes with him and his mom um and they're quick, but I actually think there's a lot of heft to them. I just think that they're so slice of life mm-hmm. that like we have to read into those moments. Mm. We, and, I, and I think it does that with all of the characters, um, but it's not. It's not a miniseries and it's not a three hour movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's the thing is that we just like we dip in and we dip out and yeah, we kind of have to do the audience has to do a little bit more of the like filling in the, the gaps a little bit to understand like you're from what you're given in the film. I'm okay um, with that. Yeah. I'd rather I, I that mean, than an extra half hour on the movie. Yeah. I mean the movie, the movie's pretty quick. Like it, it moves. Yeah. It's um, a fast movie and it just keeps like ratcheting up the intensity. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that they focused on was keeping the movie at an edge of your seat level throughout the whole thing. Um, and it, yeah, it didn't really dip. And I, like, I know we've been talking about this for a while, but um, uh, something that this film really made me um, think of is the series, Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. And I think Mr. Robot has um, a, an element of sabotage <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, B does look at like corporations influence on the climate, which has influence on people in a more expanded way. Now, the thing about Mr. Robot is that's not the main focus of it. The way that like how to blow up a pipeline is specifically about climate activism. Um, but I do think Mr. Robot would be a good pairing yeah, to, to this if you're um, interested in some more portrayals. And, and I think Mr. Robot is one of the most cinematic television shows I've ever seen. Um, Maybe that's the unfair comparison that I'm, I'm drawing is that in Mr. Robot. You're thinking of the Watership Ta- Waterton Township stuff with, and particularly thinking about the character of Angela. And like. And the development of that throughout four seasons. <laughs> yeah, which is like. <laughs> Not fair. Unfair. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I recognize that. Um, yeah. 
I thought it was a good movie. Yeah. No, I, 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 I also, I enjoyed it. I think that, you know what? I can totally have seen this also being a miniseries and also being really good. Like it could have been this one and done thing where we get more character development and it culminates in them blowing up the pipeline. You know how this world works. Somebody might make it into a miniseries. It'll be like White Lotus, but pipeline. <laughs> Next Every year. Every season, a different pipeline. Yeah. Pipelines in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> this season, pipelines in the Yukon. <laughs> uh, uh, copyright, Bad Dad, Rat Dad. Yeah. HBO. After John Wick Call- <laughs> stole our freaking idea about the Continental. Yeah. Freaking heck. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, okay. How to blow up. How did. How to blow up a pipeline make you feel? Uh, engaged in the intensity and saddened by the state of the world. <laughs> How to make you feel? I appreciated that this film gave me like a space to validly confront my own climate grief and like sit in it. It didn't solve it. Mm-hmm. It didn't make me feel good about it, but it gave me a space where it said that feeling is valid. That's what I appreciate. And I think that's important. Yeah. And like just you you kind of already said it, but that's what I so appreciate about Metro is that they recognize that this is a movie that is tackling those those feelings of climate grief and anxiety. And we're kind enough to have the climate Edmonton people there. Yeah. So before and after so that if people are feeling a certain way after the film, they can go have a little session with the people running the table. Whether it's just debriefing or whether it's like, how can I get involved? I feel like I want to get involved. Um, This played at Cineplexes. I would be really surprised if Cineplex had climate justice, anybody (laughs) (laughs) coming into their theaters. Yeah. Cineplex couldn't be fucked. No. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Third time's a charm. We're going back to Metro cinema. For, for another slow, slow cinema movie. Slow cinema. Slow dying. <laughs> um, we went and saw The Maiden, a 2022 drama. It was written and directed by Graham Foy. It stars uh, Jackson Sluter as Kyle, Marcel T. Jimenez as Colton, Haley Ness as Whitney, and Caleb Blau as Tucker. Uh, the synopsis, best friends Colton and Kyle float the river and spray paint in, local rev- in a local ravine. Like the boys, Whitney explores the ravine, seeking solace by writing and drawing in her diary. But when her friend abandons her, Whitney disappears. Um, I did not read that synopsis before we went and saw this. No. I, I really went in not knowing what was going to happen. Yeah, correct. Was gonna Me happen. too. <laughs> uh, what do you think of The Maiden? So this was tricky. Um, we had wanted to see it the first night it was playing at Metro, which was five, six days before we actually saw it. Um, But you ended up being sick, and so we didn't go, Mm -hmm. as you shouldn't go to places when you're sick. Um, And and I think it, on a Friday night, it might have been been a different audience. I don't know. Anyway, this is a slow film. I didn't know it was going to be a slow film, and that's okay. I do like a mystery aspect of even going to films in the theater. Mm-hmm. Like after having watched the new Barbie trailer, I'm like, I kind of wish I hadn't because now I feel like I know way too much about the movie mm. and I want to just like experience the movie and not be like, Oh, when's that part of it going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start with just talking about the movie. Yeah. So this was ma- made by a filmmaker who is now based in Toronto, but grew up in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is his first feature film. 
And while we have talked a fair amount about, you know, like Tegan and Sarah's show High School being filmed in Calgary, Race Boy Sleeps, um, which we covered on the show, feeling very Canadian, but it's Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just talked about Brother, which is set in Toronto. This is the most accurate portrayal of my geography. <laughs> yes. I've ever seen on film. And there is yeah. something incredibly special about seeing that when you live in a place that hasn't typically been portrayed on film. Now we see where we're from in The Last of Us and in Fargo and we're like, yeah, that looks like the prairies. But it isn't meant to be. Yeah, exactly. And we're in these genre genre TV shows, right? Mm-hmm. This was, and it wasn't just Alberta prairies. It was Alberta suburbs, which is where we grew up. Yeah. Where we still friggin' live. <laughs> Alberta yeah. suburbs. Um, and that was just like a surreal experience to be like, damn, those are what the houses looked like. Those are Alberta houses. Those are, yeah, like until you see your own place on film, I think it's easy to forget that like not all su- suburbs look the same. Mm-hmm. Yep. But there's a particular look to Alberta houses, you know, high schools portraying Alberta houses in the 90s. Damn, those are what Alberta houses looked like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. This is portraying more now, mm-hmm. present day. And I'm like, damn, like those are what the houses look like now. They even have the mailboxes that we have like right <laughs> on our street, which are new mailboxes. So yeah. very contemporary. Um, <laughs> but even like the construction, Alberta's endlessly under construction. Mm-hmm. Just it all and ravines. Mm-hmm. Alberta's prairies and ravines. Um, and it all felt so surreal to see that. Did you enjoy that aspect of the film? Yeah, like it's always it's so it's always so surreal seeing places that look like where we live. Um I like movies is another one that we saw recently that yeah, captured yeah. that sort of feeling. And this movie did a great job, especially in its in in the opening of it. Um just really capturing the oppressive boredom of growing up in the suburbs in Alberta. Yeah. And especially during the summer of where you just hop on your bike with your best friend and you just ride around looking for something to do and you inevitably end up under some gross ass bridge or next to some gross ravine or piece of water and you're just like throwing rocks um, and you're, (laughs) you're just, you're finding ways to fill your time before you had cell phones. (laughs) And this is like, this was so like almost uncanny freaky in that there's a, there's a a big aspect of the film because yes, they're just like riding around on their skateboards. These two boys, um, high school age boys who are kind of just, yeah, trying to figure out where they want to, hang out what they want to do as they're bored in the Alberta suburbs. And they end up like hanging out in a like under construction house. Mm-hmm. I used to do that with my friends. We used to mm-hmm. like go hang out in the in, in progress of being built houses, which like probably isn't allowed or climb up the mountains of dirt that oh, are being that, done. More as an elementary kid. I yeah, did a lot yeah, of yeah, that yeah, yeah. just like playing on the, on the dirt that's going to become a house. Mm-hmm. Um, but in junior high and high school, I, I did that a lot. Like I had a friend who lived um, country esque, but like you could still bike to her house. Right. And there was a string of like, it was kind of 
becoming more suburban where she was living. So there was two or three houses that were in the process of being built and we would just go and hang out in them and just go like sit on like the second floor, you know, go hang out in the unfinished basement. And and we weren't causing any trouble. We were Mm -hmm. just, and you know, you have those like flaps of translucent plastic that this film shoots a lot. Yeah. And, and so that just felt like, holy shit, like that, that literally is, it is my experience. I was not a high school skateboarder boy, but the like hanging out and just like kicking rocks by the train tracks. I did that. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. hundred percent. And then on top of that, I feel like this is a real love it or hate it, but the film and the dialogue is very naturalistic. Mm -hmm. So then from some people's perspective that can feel like bad acting or cheesy or corny but for me, it's actually hyper real. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of Gus Van Sant's Elephant, mm. which is a film I liked a lot when I was a teenager. But because it's about a school shooting, it's not something I particularly feel like revisiting as a high school teacher. Um, but these scenes of just like them talking with each other, mm-hmm. just like it felt accurate to how teenagers talk. I'm around teenagers all the time. And, you know, Colton and Kyle and Whitney and Tucker, I've taught those kids. Yeah. I've taught them many times over. I've taught so many versions of them. Um, and so that was, it was just this like surreal experience of that both feels accurate to my experience. Mm-hmm. It also feels accurate to what I'm seeing in schools now. Mm-hmm. And it's in Alberta. Yeah. Um, just speaking of, from the perspective of you as a teacher, seeing, <laughs> recognizing similarities here, this is the second movie we watched this week oddly that has a shop class <laughs> sequence in it um with a pretty potent and upsetting moment that was really well done yeah um but it's so funny because just having been with you and you've been a teacher for so long and i just hear about the ins and outs of your job and the frustrations that you have um <laughs> there's a moment that happens uh and i just the first thought i had is like oh the teacher's in trouble they're not supposed to do that <laughs> Yeah, I, I did write in my letterbox review that while I thought the depictions of teenagers were incredibly accurate, I thought they really missed the boat on the teachers. Like I thought the teachers were very stereotypical, but mm. maybe that's just me hoping we're not actually like that. And teenagers might say, actually, that feels very accurate to what my teachers are like. <laughs> right, um, right. There um, was a scene with a high school teacher making the students start like stomping and clapping as he wrapped the prologue to Romeo and Juliet. And I'm like, Stop. I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, somebody might. Somebody might. I don't know. I'm I mean, I am an adult that is more or less the age of that teacher and I found it cringe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't. <laughs> don't do that. Um so the thing that kind of drew me into this movie, not knowing what it was about necessarily, but the kind of discourse I was hearing is that it has some stand by me vibes. And I could definitely sense a bit of that. It is it is not beat for beat like that at all but uh the way that this they this decided to make the character of kyle look very river phoenix from stand by me vibes train tracks train tracks um it's like stand by me if stand by me wanted to be slow cinema it's art house stand by me yeah yes exactly Um, because it is very like this is one of those films where the action happens in in what you don't see Yes. Like it's a very interior film, which I friggin love. Mm-hmm. 
And I there were some like incredibly moving like sequences of still shots. Um, there's some stuff going on with like graffiti stuff going on with graffiti. There's a motif of graffiti, if mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and some shots with that that I found incredibly moving. It's beautifully shot. It's shot on 16 millimeter. Right. And you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. There was just some moments that decided to linger. And I'm just like, as a photograph, that's beautiful. Like yeah. as a still, that that's a beautiful shot. And like, I felt like this was, it was slow, but it was like so thought provoking. And it does, especially through the, the character of Colton, it just, he's, he conveys this feeling of heaviness and he wears it so effectively. Mm-hmm. And then I'd, I'd even say the same with Whitney mm-hmm. in a different way, but these, these young actors are able to just portray all of the internal emotions that you as a young person can feel. And as somebody that took that, I mean, that's what I did as a young person. And I took that into adulthood, stick, still carry it with me, still, still working on it. But that is such a thing of when you're a young person, especially a teenager, there's so much going on socially with your body, with your mind and who you just figuring out who you are and who you want to be and where you want to go on top of anything else that might happen in your life that can be a big obliterating thing potentially they just and you just internalize all that and it's it's i just thought it was portrayed really effectively in this yeah like imagine that scene in stand by me where river phoenix's character breaks down at the campfire yes and it's that feeling but interior yeah for the entire film yeah and uh as somebody who is ever the eternal internalizer i felt that (laughs) i felt i felt seen by that so then perhaps we should talk about the shame of of what happened here (laughs) and that i feel like this is a film that in the right context and with the right audience I would have been so moved by Um, this film is ultimately about grief. The entire thing is an exploration of grief Mm. Um, as somebody who in high school lost a friend and classmate. um, And then as a teacher have unfortunately been witness to my students losing people, but also our school losing students like Mm -hmm. more than one would like to see happen. Um, I thought the way that it was ex- the film was exploring that was incredibly beautiful and it's this slow film and it's inviting you to just be like immersed in this almost like like slowly moving river that the film is and quiet 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 film Very quiet so it's pretty busy for like we saw it on a Monday or Tuesday night um yeah it's it, like I'm going to say there was like 60 to 70 people in the theater and people were really really into it mm-hmm. like really respectful I, I i would be unsurprised if at least some of the people who were in the theater didn't know at least some of the people who were in or involved in making the film because mm-hmm. we're in edmonton and this is made in calgary um but about a third of the way through the film this group of four or five people just decided that they didn't like the film anymore and were whispering or at least what to us sounded like whispering, but it was across the theater. 
for like the whole movie and then started doing that like mean girl laughter. So it'd be like, <laughs> yeah. like that kind of thing. And it, it honestly it took me about half an hour to figure out where in the theater they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like, I felt like a level of disappointment in that, like, Everyone here, I would like if you don't know that this was made by a local filmmaker, local-ish, once local filmmaker, but a, but a Canadian filmmaker, like like how how dare like whatever do do we've seen when we saw Bros, people were assholes. This happens in cineplexes all the time, but this is a local indie movie. If you can't respect it, get the fuck out of the theater. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I kept toying with the idea of once I figured out where they were like going over and I really just wanted to say there's a coffee shop across the street. You'll have more fun there and you won't piss anybody off. Mm-hmm. And I just never did because I was like, why is like there are like 30 people closer to them than I am? Mm-hmm. Why is nobody else talking to them? Mm-hmm. And and I, I kept being like, well, the movie's probably going to be over pretty soon. Is it worth it? And, and I never did. I now wish that I either had done that or had gone and talked to someone on staff and just said, Hey, there's like four people whispering and laughing throughout the theater. And, you know, I'm finding it pretty disrespectful and like really distracting. Um, because I believe that Metro staff and, and Metro board and everyone involved in the theater also believes in cultivating a place of respect and like communal watching mm-hmm. and communal watching means allowing people to experience the film, not disrupting them with your desire to talk and laugh and laugh if it's appropriate of course but so that was really frustrating because it the film was inviting me to engage with it in a particular way and I wasn't able to accept that invitation fully Mm -hmm. because of what was happening in the theater yeah it's uh it's a freaking problem man (laughs) it's really it's really hard it's just turning into this thing of I don't know anxiousness going into any movie at, you're that playing we see Russian in the roulette, right? Like, because I mean, we this is the third of four movies we saw at Metro this week, and the only one that had a bad audience. We saw three other movies where everyone was completely respectful the entire time. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's every time, mm-hmm. but when it happens, it's so gutting. Yeah. So. My vow is to, if I don't have the willpower or ability because of closeness to go and speak to someone and tell them as kindly as I can that they're being disrespectful, to go and talk to the staff um, and to express that there. Because when it it was happening too, it's like, it's also this internal conflict of, well, why do I have to interrupt my movie going experience to leave the movie to go get somebody to hopefully solve this problem? Like, why am I having to give up my seamless movie experience to? But to my deal answer with this? to that is because those of us who value a respectful communal viewing space where we all get to experience something both individually and together in a way that is mindful of everybody else in the theater and mindful of the people involved in making the film and being respectful to them, whether you like the movie or not, and being mindful of the staff and people who are putting the film on for us, which includes cleaning up after your fucking self when you leave. Like just take your fucking popcorn with you. Metro is pretty good about that, I think. But like that's part of 
respect for the entire film going experience. Mm-hmm. Part of that means if I, if I want to be a part of creating that kind of space, then I need to go in and do something in these moments. Yeah. And I'm inviting everybody listening who also believes in that with us to do the same. If you're in a theater where people are being disrespectful, if you have the, uh, the courage or the ability or the confidence or whatever it would be to go and talk to them yourself, please do. And if you don't, that's literally what theater staff are there for. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons they're there and go and speak to them. So yeah. You, anyway, you're giving them your money to give you the experience that you paid for. And if it's not the experience that you paid for, you have the right to speak up about that. It, but to me, it's not even about that. It's not about money. It's about like, respect for like the theater going experience the film that is being made the people that are there with you the people who worked hard to make the film if you were in a movie and you were not enjoying it and you now want to talk or be a dick it's sunk cost fallacy man you don't like the movie just leave Mm -hmm. you leave or you ask for your money back but everybody else who is still there and wants to continue watching the movie we deserve a space that we are cultivating together with the staff with the filmmaker with each other so it's not about money or, or rights to me. It's about like creating a space. Yeah, I th- I think that it's, I think that it can be seen as both because like so many people see that like this is my money that I spent on this so I get to have the experience I want. So, but like, no, there is a level of respect and there is decorum that is expected when you go to one of these things. And people just like, Post-pandemic, especially, people are just giving less and less of a shit about that kind of stuff. But I think that it is, like you've said, it is up to us to start helping people adjust. Yeah, to get those cinema etiquette, social contract stuff back in back in order. To go back to the film, just to, to kind of wrap it up, um, I read an article on Variety with the filmmaker Graham Foy uh, that I thought was really beautiful. So... Uh, Foy said through the writing process and also through production, a big part of my philosophy was to try to let go as much as possible from needing the film to be perfect and to embrace the film for what it was and let the film be itself and bring its own energy. I think it's just a beautiful way to think about art. Mission accomplished. Really, really lovely. And then I think the other thing worth noting is that um, this premiered at the Venice Film Festival and it won the Cinema of the Future Award. Oh, hell yeah. That's great. It was really cool. And I think I was really compelled by Foy's direction and the story that was being told and the emotional abstract exploration of, of grief with like a little bit of magical realism in there. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what comes next. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I just, you know, with everything that happened with the audience, I wanted to take so much more of this film in, but for what it is, it is a really beautiful piece of art. Glad that we went and saw it shitheads aside yeah how did it make you feel it made me feel a soft grief Mm. soft grief is a great band name trademark bad dad rat dad how did it make you feel um heavy and thoughtfully curious it's interesting it made me feel like like a light grief Mm. diet grief no like the grief is still Grief, full, 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 full grief, but like a gentle, kind approach to feeling that grief. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. We stayed home. 
after the the dickheads at the maiden, we were like, gotta stay home. But also, we just had nothing on the docket for the theater. Um, and I decided to roll the dice with a movie that I think we both liked as teenagers that is known as a film bro movie. And I was like, let's see, let's see how we feel about it now. So I picked the 2000 crime drama horror. I would also put comedy in there personally. It's funny as shit. Yeah. American Psycho. It's directed by Mary Heron, written by Heron and Guinevere Turner. And it is based on the novel by the Pupe himself. Brett Easton Ellis stars Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman, Justin Thoreau as Timothy Bryce, Chloe Savini as Jean, and a whole lot of other people in like minor roles. Jared Leto as Paul Allen. Synopsis. A wealthy New York City investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides his alternate psychopathic ego from his coworkers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. This is a movie we had both seen before, but I think neither of us for a long time. What did you think of American Psycho? I mean, this is the movie based on the book, based on the song by Treble Charger. No. <laughs> <laughs> I like that song. It's, and yeah. now you know how far you go. Um, yeah, I've I watched this in junior high slash high school for the first time. I remember thinking it was just fucked. And I I, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say just fine. <laughs> nope. nope. Uh but I never looked deeper than surface level than a surface level reading of what it per, what it was what was being presented. Yeah, so it just felt like this like fucked violent movie. Yeah, like this guy's just doing this stuff. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And I have so I haven't watched it in a long time. Have we watched it together? No, I don't think so. Um I don't think I've seen it since I was a teenager. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I was I was looking forward to this. It's funny because uh, as soon as the credit sequence in the beginning started up, I was like, holy shit. Cause I've also, for some reason been wanting to rewatch this movie recently. So I was so stoked that you picked it. First off, I fucking love that this is made by a bunch of ladies. Yeah. It's so I guess I don't, I don't know who said this. Uh, IMDb trivia just says some media called it an adaptation of a novel written by a misogynist directed by a feminist. <laughs> Which, like, is fucking true. So then there becomes the question of, like, if the source material is fundamentally misogynistic and the source material is incredibly racist. Um, Now, whether you believe the author in that it's satirical or whether you think it takes it too far to be satirical, that's your own thing to explore. Um, Can you take source material that is that violent socially mm-hmm. and make it something else is a question. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it already kind of subverts the expectation in the opening scene where somebody says so- something that's outwardly like undeniably racist. And then Patrick Bateman calls him on that. But then he himself is racist, sexist, homophobic, anti homeless like so on and so forth (laughs) so like we're seeing the um the attempt to create a persona that will allow him to be superior despite it clashing potentially with his own beliefs yeah despite the fact that he is a full-on sociopath yeah (laughs) and And doesn't believe in the value of anyone other than himself and people like him he's uh unreliable 
and deplorable narrator. Yeah, I find it. So, yeah, this film is one that like, especially by the end of the film, you're like, oh, he was an unreliable narrator. Such a compelling thing to see on screen, because I think, at least for me, if I see something, I'm less likely to understand it as unreliable than if I read something. Mm. This is kind of like an inverse Telltale Heart. Mm. Where like Telltale Heart starts with like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Right. Whereas this, he's like, I'm doing it. And then you're like, but <laughs> did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, man, Christian Bale's really good in this. He is? Like it's really like Patrick Bateman is so ugh, and he does a, such a good job of it. Yeah. Like I, I know that Christian Bale is kind of a doinky doink as a person and somebody that works with David O. Russell as much as he has is suspect. Yeah. But yeah, holy fuck. He's compelling as hell in this. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned off the top, this movie is funny as hell and most of the humor comes from him and it's dark. Yeah. It's dark humor, but it also just, it can't help but tickle the funny bone a little bit. And this is, so this is the thing that sometimes I'm like, I don't know how validly I can speak about this because you and I watch so much horror, Mm -hmm. but I personally feel like it doesn't revel in the violence against women. No. Like that we don't see a lot of it on screen. And that we don't, that it's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's not a like sexualization or like sense of sleaziness about the the dead female bodies. Mm. And that, in fact, I think some of the more violent, at least like visually violent scenes are against men. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of the violence against women is off screen, like the, the physical violence against women. There's a lot of verbal violence against women that is very much on screen. Um, and, but the fact that like where it chooses to cut away and what it chooses to not show us feels like this was made by women and not in a slumber party massacre way of like, well, it's made by a woman, but we're appeasing the producer mm-hmm. who's a man. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like these women knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted to focus on and what they wanted to cut from and, and how they wanted to explore this character who so hates women mm-hmm. without glamorizing that. Yeah, like the movie was very much about what Patrick Bateman gets from his acts of violence as opposed to the acts of violence themselves. Yeah. So like in very key violent moments... We're focusing on his face. Yeah, instead of on like what's happening to yeah. the bodies. Yeah, we're kind of getting what he looks like before, during, and then after. Yeah. Um, instead of like we know what he's doing more or less in most of the scenes. Sometimes it's left up to the viewer to kind of figure out what he may or may not have done to somebody. And in those moments, it is also terrifying because it's like, Jesus Christ. Um. But yeah, I, I agree. Like the approach to the violence and the approach to how this movie wants to portray it and what it wants to say about it or examine it. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, um, as we started watching it, I was like, this is funny and like a I'm in on the joke that this dude is a bad dude. Yeah. 
even before he starts becoming, we start witnessing his physical violence. And then as that starts happening, it's like the film is then saying to me, at least this is what I got from it that, Oh, it's funny until we realize that he is literally so dangerous. Yes. And so we can make fun of these dudes all we want, but they are fucking dangerous. Yeah. Because and, there's a certain point where it's not funny anymore. Yeah. And that that tone shift is really well done. But like the whole film, it's this exploration on just like toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and these very certain kinds of dude bro assholes that exist. And when they when they have any like monicum of power. Yeah. And just the thoughts they can have and the, the conversations they have with each other and just how that in itself is dangerous and how it perpetuates as you get them in a room together. Then the other part of it is how people like Patrick Bateman can literally be telling them who you are or who they are. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Say that again. The other part of it is that people like Patrick Bateman can be literally telling you who they are and people ignore it. Yes. Like often when we, have things come out about like male celebrities and like public figures, you look back and you, you realize, Oh, that information was there all along. We mm -hmm. just chose to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And the film very pointedly explores that willfully choosing to ignore who a person is showing you. They are. Yes. Um, now the really scary part of this is how many people since 2000, even before then, from reading the book, take up Patrick Bateman as a figure to be like. Mm -hmm. That's where this film becomes tricky, mm -hmm. is people who, like, think Patrick Bateman is awesome. Mm. And who see this as, like, a fun movie. And I'm like, there is a sense of fun for me in it, but this movie is also horrifying. Yeah. And the character of Patrick Bateman is terrifying and not someone to admire. No. But I, I wonder if with what you're saying, a part of that, you know, possible adoration for Patrick Bateman is perpetuated through meme culture. Because this, oh, yeah. this movie is very popular in meme culture. There's so many pull quotes and, and uh, gifts that have come from this film. I would assume a lot of my students would be familiar with the memes and yet not have seen the movie. Oh, totally. And it was interesting because in looking at um, the people I follow on Letterboxd who have seen this movie, there was more than one review that said, I now understand the meme. <laughs> oh, right. Which is so interesting because I, I had to have seen this in junior high before memes were even really a thing, but certainly before they could proliferate the way that they do now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I definitely, like you, as a teenager, I just like took it as a as a horror film. Um, mm -hmm. I think I was like, whoa, that was messed up. And then yeah. kind of never, but I didn't like it enough to, to watch it all the time. No, like I've a, maybe seen it a handful of times. Like I thought it was so fucked and dark and I probably, the humor didn't really land for me at it when I was younger. I don't think. But then much. you didn't want to keep revisiting that. Yeah. Cause it's just an, it just made me feel icky. So I did want to. It still is icky. Yeah. But it's also funny and smart. And even though I think. The original author is Pee -pee gross and awful. Um, something about this that I'm like, I could see myself watching this a little bit more often. Yeah. I Now that I'm a older, smarter person, 
I was able to enjoy it a lot more. And I can see myself picking it up. Even once a year. I'd watch it around like Halloween or something. Yeah. But you're right too. There's so many celebrities in this. Reese Witherspoon. Justin Theroux. Um, I don't know. What's his name? Paul Lucas. I don't know. Douchebag guy. People. Uh, fucking Gavin from Silicon Valley is in it. Like the boss, the CEO oh, of, yeah. of Hooli or whatever. Of <laughs> Yeah. Very different roles. Yes. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that until just now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Friggin' Hooli. Friggin' Silicon Valley. All right. American Psycho. Really interesting to revisit it and decide that we like it more than we thought we would. Mm-hmm. How did it make you feel? Um, it made me feel a newly discovered understanding of what it is attempting to say. How did make you feel? It made me feel both a sense of horror at the misogyny of real world Batemans and hilarity at the satire that is employed by Heron and Turner. Mm. And I think we're meant to feel both. Yeah. All right. Take us back. Stayed home still. And is my mystery movie pick. So I picked the 1980 action adventure comedy, The Blues Brothers. It was directed by John Landis as well as written by him and Dan Aykroyd. And our main two heavy hitters in this movie are John Belushi as Julia Jake Blues and Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues. Jake Blues rejoins, rejoins with his brother Elwood after being released from prison, but the duo has just days to reunite their old R&B band and save the Catholic home where the two were raised, outrunning the police as they tear through Chicago. Man, that synopsis does a run-on sentence. Um, okay, I... I have some history with this movie that I want that I want to share, but before I get into that, what do you think of Blues Brothers? Okay, the when it started, this is another one where I was like, "Well, this is dusty," and I had like no idea what it was. Like, the, it starts in a prison, and it seems pretty like serious at first. But it starts with a bunch of like industrial Chicago. Yeah, I was like, "What? <laughs> what? Like nineteen eighties? There will be blood. Are we watching?" <laughs> right. <laughs> And then we all of a sudden go to a prison and I'm, and you had told me you didn't think I'd seen this. So I'm like, is that one flew over the cuckoo's nest? I have seen that. And I was like, what in the hell is this? And then, I mean, this is right in the opening scene as this person who we don't know who it is, is getting released from jail. So I was like, oh, it's not a prison movie. If he's leaving jail right now, um, he's getting his stuff back. They say they have a hat and then they say sunglasses. And I said, is this the Blues Brothers? And I thought that was pretty impressive of me, to be honest. Yeah, really good. I was like, how do you not, how are you not clapping for me? Why are there not hurrahs? Because this is one of the harder mystery movie picks to figure out before the credits came up. And I did it. Yeah, you did. Pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did I think of it? I, I thought it was like, I, I liked it way more than I thought I would have. Nice. Uh, th- and that's more than I could have hoped for for this movie yeah you you really like to pick snl movies yeah i guess and i often don't really like them (laughs) yeah but was wayne's world the 80s or the 90s 90s oh because i was gonna say maybe it's like the 80s snl movies that i like when was tommy boy also 90s okay because i don't like that one that's the only one i really don't like i don't think i would like mcgruber though (laughs) probably not (laughs) but i do quite like wayne's world yeah this is like the least SNL-y 
feeling yeah, I, SNL movie. I don't think I knew. I was like, I'm, I'm familiar with the fact that these characters existed before this film. Mm-hmm. But then when you mentioned it was SNL, I was like, well, that makes sense. Like John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. But it doesn't really feel like an SNL movie. Mm-hmm. No. Tell me a little bit about your history. Okay. So I was introduced to this movie and saw it for the first time when I was like nine or 10 by my dad. Oh, interesting. Okay. So my dad really liked this movie. He This was like another, like one of the early DVDs that my family owned. And I looked at the cover a lot and I was really intrigued by it. And it just had like Jake and Elwood on it. And he showed it to me. I remember watching it and I loved it. And I have, I have a bit of that and it's probably my ADHD brain, but I have a bit of an obsessive personality for stuff that I really like. And I just want to kind of revel in that. So I remember rewatching it a ton and like I listened to the soundtrack on repeat after the fact um, <laughs> that my babysitter at the time, her, husband was a blues brothers fan and they had like the poster you see in the movie they had that like framed oh like for their concert? for the show oh that's cool um and they had other cool like ephemera and limited edition stuff that i would just i always wanted to look at and it's like f- so fucking weird <laughs> my babysitter's like why is this nine-year-old kid obsessed with the blues brothers um but you also are a music guy this is true and like my dad is a music guy is as well my dad was a dj um, for many, many years, that was like, <laughs> that, that was a lot of the income that came into my house when I was younger. Um, and something this, this kind of made me reflect on this a little bit is that I really liked digging deeper on stuff that my dad liked. And now I can recognize as a way of connecting deeper with him. Mm. Um, and I did this even into adulthood. Um, and like, I, like, for example, like I remember when I started really revisiting and getting back into like 80s new wave stuff. So listening to more New Order and or- uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark and stuff like that. And kind of digging deeper into the music that I knew my dad really liked. And then I would talk with him about it. His enthusiasm, but his enthusiasm for those things that I knew that he loved never really matched mine. Mm. And that always let me down. That disappointed me because it's like. I'm doing this work because I love these things and I want to connect with you because you've always talked about loving these things. But when I'd start to talk with him about it, like he would never want to really get into it. And oh man, you know what sucks? And what? My dad is dead and he, he did the opposite. Like he, he matched your level of, and like if you had ever met my dad, and you guys had, you wouldn't have liked the same kind of music because he liked older music. Mm-hmm. But movies, oh man, he'd be like, you guys would both be like, this is, this part's so cool. And just like, my dad was really good at that, at like being a cheerleader and like mm-hmm. having that sense of wonder and excitement and enthusiasm that feels youthful. Yeah. Um, Even as an adult. What a friggin' shame he died. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, because I I never really, I never really got that from my dad. And I having, I have known your dad and spent time with him for like ten years, mm-hmm. um, before you guys kind of stopped talking. And I don't think I've ever seen your dad get excited about anything. Yeah, 
and, and like and it's funny like revisiting this movie and then like putting my notes together here like it got me really thinking about that because like even when I was nine or ten getting really into the Blues Brothers and like wanting to talk with him more about it like it was very not dismissive of as like go away I don't want to talk about this but just like oh and this and this and this and he'd be like yep mm-hmm. and it's just like no like let's gas each other up about this thing that you showed me that because you really like this movie and now I really like this movie and this is this connection point between us. Yep. <laughs> and that's, and I feel like there is this little kid, the little, my, the little kid in my brain, little Elliot that's in there. Whenever that happens, I mean, it happens between people in my life. It even happens between you and me sometimes when I'm really excited or amped up on something and I want to, talk with you and we can gas each other up about something. But if you don't reciprocate that and it's okay, like that's okay if you're not feeling that way about it. But I go back to little Elliot brain of like, but I, I want to get excited <laughs> about this thing with you. Um, but I feel like on the whole, you and me are pretty good with that kind of thing. Like when we rewatch movies, we both really love. We're like, Oh, this is, this part's so good. Oh, this, I love this. Or yeah, I love, we- like, just rewatched School of Rock in the theater. We've already covered it on the show, so we're not going to talk about it. But we just kept like tapping each other or like squeezing each other's like legs or arms when like <laughs> a part we know we both like came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I yeah I think that this was just an example of that from my youth as a little as a little nugget, um, and how that's kind of carried its way into adulthood. Um, but yeah, you know, dad stuff. But that's what we're here for. <laughs> I didn't have any dad feelings about this movie. Um, I think I remember my second oldest sister really liking this movie. But in retrospect, what I think I'm remembering is that she did a Blues Brothers routine for <laughs> an elementary school talent show. Oh. But I don't know if she'd actually seen the movie. Oh. Okay. I feel like she did. Because that would be weird, but I but I very distinctly remember this that like it was her and her friend Laura, I believe, mm-hmm. and they like they were the Blues Brothers and they had like the outfit, right? And they like did a routine. I'll have to ask her about it. Yeah, I, I got too lazy to text her prior to recording this show, but um, and she probably wouldn't have texted me back anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, just for those of you who are keeping keeping track, um, several weeks ago I texted both of my sisters and asked them who I saw Kill Bill with. And last night, one of them texted me back and said, that may have been me. But by that point, I had already deleted the text conversation. And I was like, what does that may have been me? What is that in reference to? And it took me quite a while to figure out that it was in reference to the Kill Bill thing. So. Weeks later. Yeah, like a month later, I swear. Okay, something I want to say about this movie. Yeah. And as an observation about you. Mm -hmm. You and I have gotten into... um, we have these friends we just hung out with them last night who when you and i get a little pissy with each other one of them goes fight 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 yeah this is one of our fight fight moments where which is when i say you don't like musicals and you're like i don't not like musicals here's something i i I think i I think i've figured out okay please don't fight with me about it okay i think you are more partial i'm gonna try and say this as um (laughs) as non non non-binary as i can you are more partial to musicals where they are singing songs that are being performed on instruments within the reality of like, so like a, that thing you do 
or like this than you are to like a Chicago or so on and so forth. Hmm. Where like it's more of a movie about music where there are musical performances happening within it than like a musical. Than me having to suspend my disbelief that all of a sudden a bunch of people are just breaking into song. I mean, that does happen in this. Like all of a sudden, like all of Chicago is dancing outside of a diner. But it's more. More like within the reality of the film. Yeah, that might be a thing Um, with like the 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 kind of occasional offshoot like little i fucking love little shop of horrors yes and like yeah. that's none of that um and I, I i do like a sweeney todd um <laughs> but i think that that's a i think that's a good observation yeah yeah I, it's the type of musical which like i think that that we're all kind of similar in that way right where i'm like i don't typically like victorian literature but if it's horror i might like it yeah but it's still not totally my vibe you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I hear you. But what I will say about this is I didn't, I don't think I've seen this. If I have, I don't remember it. It was really cool that it was like famous blues musicians in the film playing songs in their style. Yeah, like the, this is, I, I would never have thought of this as a nine-year-old, but like it's such a celebration of black artists. Yeah. Um, And the fact that the, actually the Blues Brothers take a back seat during many of the performances from these artists and just play a very supportive role in each of those scenes. It's very cool. And then like finding out afterwards that like the people in their band were musicians as well, like mm-hmm. is really cool. Um, the songs that like Aretha Franklin and like Cab Calloway do, like I've been singing the Cab Calloway song ever <laughs> since we, we watched it. Minnie the Moocher uh, is very good. Yeah, I liked it. Um, that was all really cool. And then on top of that, like, it's really funny. Yeah. Like, it's really funny. There was a lot of moments where I was, I was, uh, giggling. Um, cause it's, it's not slapsticky. No, I SNL. don't, I don't typically like slapsticky. It's more deadpan. Which is kind totally of my kind of humor. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, it's just dry. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> that was the clever. Same, the same way Elwood likes his toast. <laughs> dry <laughs> and cold. Um, also, Carrie Fisher isn't in it very much, but her stuff is amazing. I am, while I'm not a fan of slapstick, I am a fan of hyperbole. Yeah, the way she's introduced <laughs> is very, very good. So I loved that. This film also was released in theaters on the same day as uh, Empire Strikes Back. Oh, big weekend for uh, Carrie Fisher. And Frank Oz. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's fun. Yeah, that's funny. Do you know what you liked about it as a nine-year-old? Because this is does this does seem like a strange film for a nine-year-old to love. <laughs> I get that. I was kind of thinking about that because I, I I thought you'd ask me this question. Um, I think again, it kind of goes back to how simple of a story it is. Yeah, like it's the fact that they get out of jail and then they have one goal of getting this money and then getting it to the orphanage or getting it to the place so they can save the orphanage, and it's just the cast of characters that they run into along this journey yeah it's like the green knight <laughs> <laughs> blues brothers green knight same difference yeah a24 is the blues brothers um and i and i think i like the music um i i think that there's just some allure to jake and elwood just their outfits and the fact that they're driving like obnoxious fiends 
is <laughs> is great. Um, and I like all of the I like all the little set pieces along the way, all the stops that they make of getting the band back together. Um, and then it culminates in one of the most both impressive and ridiculous car chase scenes. Oh, see, as you know, that's where this film lost I, me. And you know what? I knew that it would lose you. And it's such a shame because I was like really liking it. And then there's like a half hour action sequence where I was like, I'm, I'm so bored. I'm so done. I, mm. um, although in terms of trivia, at the time that that was done, it set a record for the most cars wrecked on film. 103. Two years later, a film called The Junkman broke that record. But then in 2003, The Matrix Reloaded broke that record by wrecking over 300 cars on film. Oh, shit. So, uh, but that tells you the fact that it broke a world record for number of cars wrecked on film, how much I was done with that. <laughs> I was like, this could have, it's a long movie. Like it's like two hours and 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that an SNL movie has any business being that long. <laughs> um, but I really liked it until that point. If mm -hmm. we watch it again, I might just like read a book for about 20 minutes at that point. <laughs> would you watch it again? Yeah, but I really would dislike the ending, <laughs> especially right. watching it a second time. No, like I'm not going to get anything out of that action sequence a second time. Yeah. Um, on its 30th anniversary, the Vatican newspaper called it a Catholic classic and recommended it. <laughs> That's odd to me. That is odd to me. Because, yeah, okay, the whole thing is they're on a mission from God. But but I feel like it's kind of taking the piss out of that idea. Yeah, it's just an excuse for them to... <laughs> to never give up. <laughs> to never give up and be able to break as many laws as they need to to <laughs> accomplish their goal. And, like, this movie has... I would certainly say like a subtext of civil rights. Mm -hmm. And then there's like this also subtext of like Nazis are bad. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad that the cat, like the Vatican is pro that, but um, yeah, like, I, I wouldn't consider this a Catholic film. Yeah. Like there is this. Did you watch this in school in Catholic school? <laughs> I did not. Um, yeah. And there's like this very anti-capitalism angle yeah. sub subtext to it too. Yeah. Like, it's very, like, damn the man and fuck an awful it's, people. It's kind of, it'd be a good double feature with School of Rock. Yeah, just to yeah. get to the maniosis. Okay, I have a great story, though. Okay. So, I guess one night, so John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were, like, really good buddies. Mm -hmm. And I think Dan, Dan Aykroyd has spoken a lot since John Belushi's death about, like, how, how close they were, how much he misses him. He was really against um, this documentary that was made about him and, like, um was very vocal about thinking that it wasn't ethical mm. while they were filming one night, Belushi just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so Dan Aykroyd was like looking for him and near the filming set, there was a single house that had its lights on. And so he went to go like ask them for help, see if they knew where he was, introduce himself. He gets there. Homeowner opens the door before he can even start talking. The homeowner smiles and says, you're here for John Belushi, aren't you? I guess what had happened was John Belushi went to the house with the lights on asked for a glass of milk and a sandwich and then fell asleep on their couch. <laughs> You're looking for John Belushi, aren't you? <laughs> and I guess that like one of his like nicknames that he was affectionately called by people was America's guest. Cause he like, <laughs> he would just do stuff like that. Just be like, Hey, I'm John Belushi. Can like, will you make me a sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I just I love that. I mean, I know he had his demons and he had um, addictions and, and struggled, but that's very sweet. Yeah. This also this film had a. Um, a book that came out with it called Blues Brothers Private, and it was paperwork and news clippings that had been collected by Sister Mary Stigmata over the years. Oh, my babysitter had that. I was just going <laughs> to ask. Did you? So you've looked through it? Yeah. Was it cool? Yeah. Yeah. This my, was really, baby, this was really cool. my babysitter had that. <laughs> yeah. No. Like, <laughs> really sick. <laughs> I, I do love when you show me a film like this that you loved as a child because I love adult Elliot. I've only known you since you were 17. Mm-hmm. Little you seems so strange. Like, yeah, like it's the more I get insight into this like little person that you were, <laughs> I just, I can't. And it's, you know, it's funny because this week, I found my grade seven memoirs mm-hmm. and they were all about movies. Mm-hmm. And just the more that we talk to each other and reflect on our past, like you and I have both independently been obsessed with movies mm-hmm. since we could be. Yeah. Like my, my front cover of my grade seven memoirs is just all movie posters. Yeah. And that was not the task, <laughs> <laughs> but this is me, but that was me. And then like looking at some of the movies that I liked, as evidenced in this thing that like I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street in grade seven. Mm-hmm. I was watching it. I was watching Fight Club, apparently, apparently. Film Bros. And then in it, I also apparently was reading 1984. <laughs> like, what is going on with me? Anyway, little less weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was afraid a little bit uh, that this wouldn't stand the test of time as well as it ended up doing. I was kind of surprised. Like there was su- there's a few lines here or there and a few moments that aren't super great. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and maybe a few cameos of people that have ended up not being great people. Um, but on the whole, I mean, pretty decent. But I'm glad I got to show it to you. I've been thinking about it. And we got two brothers in, in a week watching Brother and then Blues Brothers. Brothers, Brothers, Brothers. Brothers, Brothers, Brothers. Very different brother movies, but. Indeed. How did Blues Brothers make you feel? I mean, minus the car chase scene, because I hated that. Yeah. Um, it made me just feel like silly fun with a side of good music. Yeah. You? Uh, just nostalgic and reflective on dad stuff. All right, last last movie of the week. My my notes are pretty short on this one. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh okay. We went to see the 2022 drama musical Carmen. It was directed by Benjamin Mipier, but it is spelt millipede, <laughs> which is fun. Um, written <laughs> by Loic Barrer, Alexander Dinelari, and Lisa Loomer, or Lume, depending on if she is also French. Um, it stars Melissa Barrera as Carmen, my boyfriend himself, Paul Mescal, as Aiden, and Rossi De Palma as Masilda. Synopsis. Benjamin Mipier's complete reimagining of Carmen tells a story through an experimental dreamscape featuring an original score and songs. And based on that synopsis, you understand that there's actually very little plot to this movie because there's not even a plot in the (laughs) synopsis. All right, what did you think of Carmen? I mean, uh, 
I was totally here for Handsome Boy and Girl, Melissa Barrera and Paul Mescal. Um, had some pretty cool camera work. <laughs> I liked his little song that he played in it. Uh, but not much pulled me into this movie. Um, like I said, it's kind of it. It is gorgeous, really well shot. It it did not grab me. You did not like it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I I like I said, I don't have much to say about this movie because I didn't super enjoy it. But why don't you why don't you tell me about it? Okay, well, I also didn't love it. I did it for Paul Mescal. Yeah, like like. I, I would not have gone to see this movie if he wasn't in it. Yeah, and I'm so happy to be there to support you. <laughs> it's funny because I, I've lamented on this show how Johnny Depp is my most watched actor by a friggin' mile because mm-hmm. when I become obsessed with somebody or something, I want every aspect. I, I'm like, even the bad movies, I'll watch them. And I was like, I'm I'm too old now to watch even bad movies. But clearly... That's not the case. I think it's easy with like, because Paul Mescal has only made like, we've seen every film he's made except for one and we, and we want to see it. We just haven't found it for free yet mm-hmm. because he's so early in his career. It's easy to just watch all his movies, even if they're bad. Yeah. But if he had like a backlog of bad movies, I wouldn't watch them. Yeah. And this was very split on my letterbox. Only a handful of people who have seen it, but they've either given it like lower than a three or close to a five. Hmm. So like people do really like it. Mm-hmm. I was worried I would hate it and I didn't, mm-hmm. but I didn't love it. Um, first of all, this version of Paul Mescal is not my boyfriend. No, It's like zero dark 30 Paul Mescal and n- no version of that kind of person is my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Like I want my Paul Mescal with his little mullet and his little earring and his like flowy pants. Giving you kisses. Give me kisses and like feeling his emotions and talking about therapy and like that kind of stuff. This version of Paul Mescal is like, I can shoot a gun. Look at my bad military tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's like not my favorite haircut. Yeah. A little bit too short. A little bit too buzz cut, um, which is fitting for the character. I did think particularly Melissa Barrera, her singing was really awesome. And her dancing. There was some really cool dancing. Yeah. In fact, I like almost wish this had been more experimental. Mm. Like I wish it had gone like full experimental because in the moments where it was like just a regular movie, I was like kind of boring. And like also Benjamin Mipier, Benjamin Millipede. Is this your story to tell about like borders and stuff? Right. And like, I've no, I don't know the opera Carmen. So I like thought that this was actually based on it, but then being like, oh, it's like very loose. Actually, it's like basically not at all. It's just like we have some songs in the background in one or two scenes. <laughs> I'm like, so what? <laughs> like, I don't. But yeah, there was some cool dancing. Sometimes I struggle with like most of the film. I feel like they were trying to evoke like a stage by having the set be very sparse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, then I would rather just see this as a theatrical. Like, I'd rather just see this in the theater, like in, in a theater on a stage. Right. You know me. I'm not a big fan of watching like comedy specials or like live music that's recorded. I'd rather just like go to the comedy club or go to the concert. Yeah. Because I don't feel like, like, it's just like a crappy recording where like 
you don't actually get to experience it as it's meant to be experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, now I will watch those things if it's my own, like if my, it's my only way to see Hamilton or if it's my only way to watch Mae Martin's comedy special, then I will, but I'd rather see it in person. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like if I had seen this on a stage, I would have liked it more. Mm-hmm. And then there was like some moments where like, I don't mean to be an asshole, but it felt like a high school project of like reimagine this famous work in like a, a contemporary genre where it was mm-hmm. like kind of corny cheesy. Yeah. 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 And I was like, Ugh. it got like pretty melodramatic in a, yeah. High school cheesy way. One of the people I follow on letterbox said like a uncharacteristic career L for Paul Deskill. Hey, you know, <laughs> at least I don't know. I mean, I know Rami Malek was a big crush of yours and then he just took a path, a career path, the choices he's been making. Yeah, you don't hear me talk about him much anymore. Yeah, not good. For a while, he was my number one boyfriend. Um, So here's hoping, you know, Paul Mescal. There's some rumors that he's going to be in Fantastic Four and I don't like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd be happy for him to like have the money, but does anyone need that much money? I'm sure he's doing fine. Yeah, he's a, You're going to go from After Sun to Marvel? Yeah, I guess I Florence know. Pugh kind of did that with like Midsommar to Marvel, but. It'd be great if he was just like Charlotte Wells' muse and he was just in all of Charlotte Wells' But it took her like a stuff. decade to do After Sun, so it might be a while <laughs> before she does another one. Anyway, I thought that this movie was like, the story was really meh. It was really like Romeo and Juliet, star-crossed lovers, Shakespearean tragedy but make it contemporary like put in some social issues like the American Mexican border I am glad that like it was in Spanish and not like I I, I appreciated that like much of the film remained in Spanish mm-hmm. um, and I thought Melissa Barrera was the highlight of it despite the fact that I went there for Paul Mescal I did like the little moment where he plays on the guitar. Could it could he use more of that? Mm-hmm. He's a really nice singer. Yeah, that was really nice. <laughs> yeah, I I don't have anything else to add. Sorry that to end the week on kind of a not exciting note. It's not one I would rush out to see. Nah. How did it make you feel? Happy to come out to support Kai and her boyfriend. That make you feel <laughs> happy to see my boyfriend. <laughs> But otherwise uninspired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I have a lot of boyfriends. So Paul Mescal is number one right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm not going to hold this one against you. I, like, I didn't think it was bad. I know you thought it was bad. I just didn't think it was good. I thought it was, as the, as the kids say, mid. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit less than mid. That's okay. Dads of the week. Who is your bad dad of the week nominee? I mean, I'm going to be like just flabbergasted if they're not the same. Yeah. Um, Patrick Bateman? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. Elitist, violent, misogynistic, garbage douche. Toxic, icky, sick, socio- sociopathic, and dangerous. Patrick Bateman. Don't, Don't be, be our, our dad. dad. <laughs> Rad dad of the week. I picked Michael from Brother. Oh, interesting. I feel like while Michael is a complicated, complex character... I think at his core, he's a caring, 
compassionate, kind, and reflective person. Um, and is like 100% there for his loved ones and the people he cares about and wants to help them do the best that they can. I love that. I love that as a dad. Who'd you pick? I picked Aisha from Brother. Ooh, hmm, that's a good choice. So while I agree with everything you said about Michael, I feel like he sometimes does that to a fault where he's unwilling to allow other people to actually grow and heal, particularly his mother, because of what he believes is best for them. Mm. Um, and sometimes, although it's in the, it, it's with the best of intentions, that desire to protect actually stifles. Whereas Aisha, I feel like even through her own grief, she sees the importance in community and collective healing and like helps slowly and gently guide various people through that um, in ways that are hard for her at times. And, mm. and, but I think ultimately help her tackle her own grief as well, because she's feeling grief over the same loss Michael is. And then, and then another loss that's more particular to her. Um, I think sometimes she pushes when she's like, you know what? You just got to be pushed here. And she recognizes like when that push needs to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the sense of healing and, and community mostly comes from her character. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm convinced. All right. Aisha. Be our be dad. dad. Uh, Red wreck. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. <laughs> If you haven't seen our recent reel at baddad.raddad on Instagram, oh baby, you should go and watch it. <laughs> Is that the red rag? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, we recently took out from the library and binged the whole series over the garden wall. It is from the Cartoon Network. It's from it's from the aughts, I think. Yes? Uh it's from I think the aught tens. I don't know how you say that. Tens. 2013. Okay. It's from 2013. Nope. 2014. It's from 2014. Um, it's this great little series of little cartoons that are, I don't think any of them are longer than 15 minutes. No, I think they're like all 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it has Elijah Wood in it as a voice actor, Melanie Linsky, other really great little cami skis that show up it's really great it was really funny it had some twists and turns i didn't expect it to have but it's just really charming and really lovely we were very late to hop on the over the garden wall band bandwagon but we're fully aboard now oh yeah so i don't i don't know where you can seek it out i mean like i said we got it from our library but if you're able to find it online streaming somewhere or buy the DVDs, what have you. Seek it out over the garden wall. Red Wreck of the Week. Thank you very much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get, get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Links for those are in the show notes. And we'd absolutely love you forever if you shared us with the rad people in your life. And drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for Paul Meskel's girlfriend and me this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm and El I'm Paul Meskel's girlfriend. <laughs> I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads 
have to be bad. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.